Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Hey, and thanks for listening in to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined today by Reverend Dr. Nancy Pittman. Hello. Hi. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and being a part of this. I am really uh, honored to have you. You're one of the I've really been fortunate to talk to a lot of interesting people, and I'm really excited and pleased that uh, I get to talk to you today. So thank you so much. Um, I had the pleasure of taking, I think it was just the class of Revelation from Dr. Pittman in seminary at Phillips Seminary. We'll talk about her role there in a few minutes. But um, for me, at least, I think you were my advisor, too. Was that correct? It's been so long. Oh, it has been long. It could it could well be, yes. Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seems like forever ago. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I'll let her tell her tell us more about that. Uh, but it was always just a, a pleasure seeing her energy, her passion, her enthusiasm, and her commitment to faith, to the church, to theological education. So, Nancy, uh, and I may ask, I think it's okay if I call you that. Yes. Of course. Okay. Uh, Nancy, tell us a little bit about your story, if you would. Okay. Well, I was born in the high plains of Texas, actually in Lubbock, Texas. And I've always thought that my geographical um, space when I was a, was a young child was really formative on the ways I think about God and the ways that I participate in the movement that those of us who are Christian call church. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and part of that's because in the high plains of Texas, I was born in Lubbock and then grew up in Amarillo. You can see for miles. Hmm. And the landscape there to me is absolutely and stunningly beautiful. I, I still every so often must get out into the high plains so I can look out to the horizon and see the sky unbroken. Yeah. And I, I, my earliest memories of freedom were the freedom to, to take my bicycle out up the one hill in Amarillo. Maybe there's two, but I think there's just one and, and go out to the edge of town and watch the sun set across the those prairies uh, and being so um, enthralled by that vastness. And I say that it has something to do with my faith because that's where I really got the sense that God is so huge. Wow. And that and that the limits are almost of, of divinity are beyond my imagining. It's vast hmm. and all-encompassing and beautiful and full of incredible possibility. Wow. So uh, the other factor of all that was um, in the High Plains, there's a, 
a large canyon called Paladura Canyon that cuts across uh, much of the central part of what's considered the panhandle of Texas. Okay. And so, uh, again, when you're up on those plains, you don't see that canyon. It's a little like approaching uh, the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Uh, So suddenly you come upon this huge crack in the in the earth's surface and when i was a child that's where our church had its church camp was oh, in wow. the of the paladura canyon and built along oh the paladura canyon was carved by the prairie dog fork of the red river i'm pretty sure i'm remembering that quite right so what we had in that church camp was a creek a finger of that particular um okay river. And remember, for people from West Texas, river does not look like the Mississippi. Kind of like Colorado, too. Yeah. yeah. Yes. In fact, I even crossed the, the uh, one time hiked across the Rocky Mountain headlands. Uh, I mean, excuse me, the Rio Grande headlands. Yeah. In Colorado. Uh, anyway, um, it's just, you know, it's a very, rivers are small. And, mm-hmm. and um so our church and our denomination, the Christian Church Disciples, have built a church camp in this. And what what I experienced as a child in that place was the intimacy of Christian community hmm. that was nurturing and supportive. Uh, the camp itself was fairly, what we would consider today, fairly rustic. But to yeah. my eyes, it was... It was sustaining and the trees and the little creek and the cinder block dorms, all of that signified to me what it means to be in community with people who so genuinely cared about me and showed me so consistently. Um, My father worked and hardly ever took a vacation. And the only vacation we took with him was to a camp called Fam to that camp called and it was an experience called family camp. Okay. That was the only time I ever really saw my father relax hmm. and really laugh as as we all did um, in the activities and the and that and those beautiful spaces were, were just so inviting. And I'm talking inviting in August in West Texas, which is hot, hot, hot. I can only imagine. And yet that's where we as a family and where I most wanted to be most of wow. my life. Uh, all, all again, which Lauren just shapes so much the way I, I view the world and the way I view what it means to follow Jesus in community. Mm-hmm. Is there anything as you've grown and matured that's looked different from your early experiences of faith and Christianity? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For one thing, that church camp could not be supported and had to be sold. Uh, As the as the mainline Protestant institutions have continued to. Oh, that's that's about the word right there. decline but it has lost members i'm not saying it has members and resources and people right uh and and i don't necessarily think that's such a bad thing but it does involve loss yeah 
the loss of a church in Amarillo that was several thousand members, you know, with a huge Sunday school program and an active youth program. Uh, that church now is maybe 150 members and hmm. and kind of stuck with this huge building that they don't know what to do with. Uh, and the church camp is now owned by the Methodists. And the, oh, okay. Yeah. So in, in that sense, what I understood to be institutional church is not at all what it is today. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I'm curious. I'm curious, like, you have this real affinity, it sounds like, for the outdoors and wide open places. And I'm curious if you've incorporated that into your spiritual practices. Not as much as I should. Hmm. Uh, for one thing, uh, my husband is um, struggling with, with Parkinson's, and he himself cannot do the kinds of things that we used to do, go on the hmm. hike and the, and the wandering journeys that we used to take. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that inhibits that. Uh, I will say this, though, Lauren. Um, we built a pond in our backyard years ago. Mm-hmm. And that remains to be a, a good place for me to just stop and mm. be quiet. And yeah. Look at those beautiful koi that float around in that little pond that we had a hand in making a, a pretty vibrant ecosystem now. Yeah. Well, you've already, you've already hit on a couple or twice if we want to hear this theme of loss. And it kind of leads into what I was going to ask you about in, in some sense. Cause I, you've, you've hinted at like in the mainline Protestant church, which we're both a part of in the Christian church, disciples of Christ, from resources to property to buildings to people, we've experienced a lot of loss. You've mentioned experience, as I hear it, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. some sense of loss mm-hmm. in your own personal life. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about um, the, the crisis as we're recording this, we find ourselves in, in this COVID-19 reality. And I can't help but think about all the different losses that are taking place um, to churches, to communities, to families, to individuals. And this is a little off topic, perhaps, but I, I just curious, like, how do you, how would you respond to that as a, as a minister of the gospel? What would you say to those people, uh, institutions, mm-hmm. communities experiencing so much loss? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing is I'd make room for it. Mm. Way too often in the last couple of decades, the the main line has tried to paper over its loss. Yeah, uh, we live in a culture that uh, doesn't value the processes of grief. Yeah, uh, and certainly doesn't value the time it takes to deal with one's grief. Uh, so, so my first. And I would say this for all kinds of social change, even wonderful, great social changes. It's still important to say that change always denotes loss of some kind. And that loss is, in my experience, maybe necessary, maybe, maybe leading to something far better, but it's still painful. 
it, it's really, really painful to face the fact that we cannot go out to dinner yeah. with people that we care about yeah. and just enjoy a meal and enjoy a different surrounding. That's really, that's painful. Yeah. It's loss. Uh, and so, so that's my first word of advice is to um, just let it be the loss it is. And and then yeah. maybe, and then maybe my second is then to um, make space for whatever can be good hmm. in that change. Um, so even the zooming craze. Um, yeah, That's Zoom. Great fun. <laughs> uh, for for a while there, my my daughter and her husband <clears throat> and my only biological grandchild live in Indianapolis. And for a while there, we saw them every night as we all coped with this new reality. Yeah, you know, on actually Facebook Messenger. Not that I'm doing any plugs for anybody, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, hold on. We don't have no one is sponsoring the podcast yet. <laughs> so, maybe, but but the making space for that, the kind of appreciating, I'm not spending quite so much time in a car. Yeah. Uh, the challenge in my work, the challenge of finding ways to meaningfully connect with the people with whom I work and with students. Yeah. And sometimes that can be surprisingly wonderful. Hmm. So, so, so I think, you know, naming loss and then attending to even the smallest things that are good mm -hmm. is at least a helpful start for navigating whatever it is we're dealing with in, in this entire society. Well, that's great. Thank you. And for our listeners, that was just off the cuff from her. So let's, I didn't tell her that question was coming. So it speaks to her wisdom. No. So let's talk about your work. And I mentioned this at the introduction. You are the president of Phillips Seminary, and I'll own my bias here. I'm a graduate, as I talked about earlier. I'm a graduate of Phillips Seminary, class of 2013. So I'm a little biased here. But uh, how was the seminary you know, I experienced it from running a church and trying to navigate it from that. But I'm curious, how is the seminary navigating this COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, well, as you remember, Lauren, we had already moved some of our classes online. Right. We started doing that even, I think, 2000, well, actually way back at the beginning in 2000, but started yeah. doing that in a really um, significant way in 2008 or nine. Yeah, I, was the, I think I was the first class. I think you were too. Of 2009, I think. <laughs> and, and that's when we, we told students they could take at least two-thirds of their program yep. online. And that was based on the Association of Theological Schools, our accrediting agency that was based on their, their rule at the time. That was okay. the rule. So, and yeah. And seminaries could petition to put a whole program online, huh. but we didn't make that petition. And I, I don't really see that we ever will. Yeah. But when we did that, uh, a lot of tools and resources that are available now, weren't. we just didn't know. 
<laughs> we taught right, them. Yeah. We were the most self-taught group of people. And lots of, of failures as we struggled to find ways to connect again with folks that we weren't seeing in a classroom. And that was really new for so many of us who had been classically trained in really great institutions across the country. Mm -hmm. And and one was supposed to be in the same space with one's students. And that was how learning happened. Now, that's not really true, as as you know. Right. (laughs) And so, so, so when COVID started really making its its presence known in for us in Oklahoma, it was mid-March. Um, our dean at the time, our interim dean, Dr. Joe Bessler, kept telling me I needed to take this seriously. And one of my favorite coping mechanisms is to ignore people. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I was busy ignoring him. And then it was quite clear that we, we were going to have to take this very seriously. And hmm. thanks to, to Joe and many other people, we stepped up to the plate and dealt with it. But we were in a good place by then because we did know how to teach online. And now we did understand how to find tools and resources that worked for us so that we could, again, do the meaningful kinds of formative educational experiences we wanted to continue to offer people. Uh, and we and the faculty was amazing and they just did the work they needed to do. Mm-hmm. And it was hard and it was hard for students. Can I give one other shameless plug? Please do. <laughs> Phillips is somewhat unique, Lauren, in the fact that we uh, have been fortunate to have a fairly um, substantial resource, financial resources from which to draw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we started experiencing these crises and our students were losing their jobs and their family members were losing their jobs and their children were suddenly home and all of the stuff you know yeah. happened. Yes, yeah. And our board immediately started meeting and making sure that there were resources available to support students during this critical time. We wow. gave students who already get, what, 80 to 70 to 80% of tuition grant usually. Mm-hmm. We gave them an additional 10%. Wow. So that, so that we could continue to help make, you know, school affordable. And at the same time, we... If we had to, we made arrangements for maybe, you know, students were unable to pay their tuition at that point. So we just made arrangements to to put that off until they were able to to do so. So that so we've been really fortunate and our board has just been so caring about people who are really in difficult situations. And yet, as you know, Lauren, we live out of our call. Yeah. And so. to help let them continue to pursue that call was really wonderful to watch. Wonderful to see all these people work on that. Phillips has navigated pretty well, and and we've made the decision to put all classes online again this fall. And we look forward to a time when students can again gather for intensives because we've also found that to be a fairly effective learning environment. So. Yeah, that's how I took my classes, and I I really enjoyed them. I'd say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always joke like I'm an I'm kind of a nerd, so like most people were like exhausted after Friday afternoon. I'm just like, hey, let's go, let's go another week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
especially after you've been eight to five every day. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I'm curious, what has been maybe the thing that you found most challenging as a leader or maybe the, the biggest observation you've noticed within yourself during this time? Like for me, I know I've, I found myself and I don't, you can probably almost hear it in my voice now fatigued so much just from like the amount of seemingly huge decisions that have to be made. And I'm curious, what's that look like for you? It's the same. Uh, and decision fatigue, I think I've seen some other posts and things about yeah. you as every day presents some new challenge that one had never thought of, including <laughs> the hiring of a dean that you never met. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm fortunate that over the summer, we've had some doctor of ministry classes going on, but we have yeah. all the master's classes. Mm. So I think that helped give us a break. And, and as, as you know, better than I pastors don't have that break. Yeah. <laughs> and this church online, while certainly doable and also really, there's some really great things about it. It is such hard work. Yeah. And, and so much, goes into the planning of these worship services and the constantly trying to reach out that that a seminary is somewhat shielded from right now. Yeah, I would I would definitely echo that. I think the, you know, as they say, Sunday comes every week. Yes, right. <laughs> and yeah. Right. And and people I think what those of us who are trying to make meaning, and you know, I think we talked about that in different classes. Yep. Pastors are are the are people who are trying to help people bring meaning, bring gospel, bring justice, mm-hmm. all of that into their lives. And with each new surprise or disappointment that this COVID has engendered, I don't know about Colorado, but our numbers of cases in Oklahoma are going up so much. Yeah. And then they have to stand up and say, and somehow God is at work in this. Yeah. It's hard. I I really believe it. I really believe it. It's why I get up in the morning and (laughs) yeah, so hard. To, to do that in this kind of unseen enemy and not to mention the politics of all of what we're going through. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm preaching to the choir. Sorry, Lauren. No, I need to, I need to hear it. So I need to hear it. And I, I'm, I'm guessing others need to hear it. So thank you for sharing that. So I want to ask kind of, again, to this COVID situation we find ourselves in, I'm thinking about this as a pastor. I'm a pastor of a new, newer church. And I'm thinking about the what I see is just incredible disruption. This is to church as a quote-unquote industry. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but wonder, for you, how do you see COVID-19 permanently disrupting theological education? Or, And again, I, I preface this, if you don't see it permanently, Tell me that too, I guess. Okay. Oh, I think it's permanently disrupting theological education, not to mention church. Yeah. 
and one of the things I think we should embrace is this. We, we have functioned uh, in the main line, I think, in Western Christianity with a certain kind of idolatry of the building. Oh, yeah. That is to say, we have thought of ourselves so much as tied to these buildings that yeah. are the repositories of our best memories. I mean, I just described one when I started talking to Right, them. yeah. And we've described this church is a place. Mm-hmm. Church is a place where you pull off and go see the Holy One or one another or whatever. Right. Uh, uh, and it's and it's loaded with all kinds of meanings that really needed to be disrupted, Lauren, quite frankly. Wow. Um, you know, and I know that churches have spent way too much money on their buildings. And so so have institutions of higher education and theological education. Yeah. You know, I, for the longest time, I was so envious. I almost lusted after some of the buildings in the upper Midwest and uh, oh. in the East. Yeah. Look just like seminaries are supposed to look. <laughs> yeah. You know, ivy colored halls and beautiful tree shaded courtyards and offices where you could practically feel and like at the University of Chicago that Paul Tillich stood right mm. in that place and mm-hmm. you smelling. And now we've realized that really the church did need to leave the building. Wow. <laughs> and I really love and celebrate that. I I think we really were way too bound to these places. That's one. Can I say Mm -hmm. something that I see? Go for it. Go for it. With with this, again, refreshed realization for numbers of people that we still could stay connected online Mm -hmm. and through all kinds of technological wonders, uh, we can make really fine faith experiences and really fine theological educational experiences accessible to lots of people. You know, these tools are affordable. Uh And suddenly, Lauren, again, it's, I grew up in a white you know, we thought of ourselves as middle class, but in the, right. in the world's scheme of things, right. way upper middle class. Right. And uh, I grew up in a family that said to me, the minute I came out of my mom, well, you know, you're going to grow up, you're going to go to college, and only then, after you get a degree and are able to support yourself, are you even going to think about getting married. Mm-hmm. So I, I grew up with that kind of emphasis. Well, that's all kind of a luxury. Yeah. My parents made that possible for me. And so that that then opened the gate for me to go to some really great schools. And I love those schools and treasure them. But think how few people get to go to school now. Mm, yeah. Especially higher ed and especially theological education. Right. So we're in a position now, I think, to make it accessible to all kinds of folks and affordable. Uh, so one doesn't have to give up one's family and one's life to journey across the country. So you can sit under, you can sit in that beautiful courtyard and goodness knows you get great education. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Afford to do that. 
And, and especially with the, I'm sorry, I'm just preaching away, Lauren. No, this is related to a question I was going to ask you later on. So I'll ask a follow-up, but keep keep going. I just I just want to say then that um, those of us who benefited from that system as it was in the 20th century, yeah, forgot how elitist it was mm. and how classist it was. And so mm. what I'm really interested in is trying to help people have access to again the great riches of the faculty at Phillips Theological Seminary and and make sure that everybody gets to know these things or gets to be involved in this important work and not just the few of us who can pull up stakes and move. I'm taking a breath, Lauren, sorry. <laughs> no. First I, I I mean that's one of the reasons why I went to to Phillips because like I looked at some some a good school near where I live, a great school in my opinion, but financially it was just completely impossible. And moving my family across states mm-hmm. was also impossible. And that's what be that's what made Phillips become such an attractive option for me because it, it really spoke to where I was. And, you know, again speaking of like class and privilege, I certainly wouldn't have situated myself anywhere super upper class at all. But again, as a straight white male, had a fair bit of privilege and still do. And so I really appreciate the ways you're kind of naming, what do you call it, built-in or inherent privilege yeah. that has existed? And it's a white thing. Yeah. And it's a class thing. Uh, and, and the struggling to face one's own privilege without getting all self-involved and guilt and shame and all that other stuff that, that white progressives yeah. sabotage their own efforts for justice yeah. um, to just name it and say, yes. And how can we address it? So it's not like that in the 21st century. Well, that leads me to another question I was going to ask you and it's kind of related to our previous, what we've been talking about is a question that keeps rolling around in my head. And I say this as someone who loves, loves, loves theological education, as someone who would you know, require, would want to require theological education for every pastor and church leader. But I'm also uniquely aware of how much it costs and how little churches are paying these days. And I wonder, like, from a most basic question, like, is theological education worth the money? Or maybe we could... Maybe I could ask, ask that a little more kinder and say, how do you market, if I can use that word, theological education when it when all the, the metrics seem to be like it's not valuable, if, if that makes sense? Well, it may not be valuable financially. Yeah. So let's, start, let's first start naming where we understand value to be. Yeah. And granted, uh, students even at Phillips, I'm sorry to say, go into debt mm-hmm. uh, to pay for this education. And some of them never get a financial return on that. Yeah, I, I get, I really do get that. But he, here's what I want to say. Yeah. The truth is, too often we Americans particularly white Americans, get trapped into 
this financial return language, this, I should be able to get something back mm, Yeah. financially for, for whatever it is I'm investing. That's yep. And then we also get trapped into a certain kind of now, we got to get it now. Yep. And, and our third kind of cultural thing is uh, a, an overconfidence. Oh, yeah. Our understandings of how God works in the world. Oh, yeah. So in the face of those three things, uh, yeah, theological education doesn't always seem to make sense. Yeah. And when we think about the vastness of God, do we really honestly think we can understand all of the riches of God and God's creation and God's purposes and God's ways in the world just by our own living in our own little bubble and repeating to ourselves our own little mantras and then going to find a few people who agree with us about how mm-hmm. it is. This is how it is. And this is how God works. So, okay. Yeah. This is the plain sense, never even questioning that whatever it is that we call the plain sense of the Bible, right? Exactly what anyone else thinks is the plain the plain sense of the Bible. So, so the, all of that is to say that then theological education, as you know, begins to open our souls and our minds to, to this vastness, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the, to the very fact, and this is a disciple's problem, uh, that, you know, this movement, this following Jesus business has been going on for 2,000 years, and it grew out of a monotheistic movement that was thousands of years before that. Yeah. And really, we, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know everything there is. So that in, when we are seeking to guide and lead individuals and churches um, into what it means to be faithful to this Jesus, it requires some discipline, study, and some time, and a great deal of energy, and and a great deal of learning to pay careful attention um, to how God is moving in the world, how God has moved in the world, how God might move in the world, if you're so just yeah. just think you know. Um, well, I think I do know, actually. But anyway, uh, uh, so so I, that's one of the things that I want to say about theological education. Yeah, because being a minister is tricky business. It is, and I I sense part of it is the the part of this discord. I don't know if that's the right word. Is just these kind of con- conflicting values mm-hmm. of what you just spoke to, and then kind of what you originally mentioned about financial returns and now and immediate returns and results, which for better or worse, and I guess that's a question of faith, isn't how we see, tend to see, I, I would think, that's how we see God act in the world. And yeah, that's a hard one. Mm-hmm. It is a hard one. Well, let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with 
Dr. Nancy Pittman. So, Nancy, you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. If you are Pope for a day, you have one agenda item you'd like to accomplish. Yeah. I've been laughing about this all week, all weekend after thinking about it. You know what I'd do, Lauren? Yeah. You know what I almost have to do is if I were Pope for a day, I'd have to abolish abolish the Pope. That's so funny. It's so funny because uh, for season one, you'll have to go back and listen to it. Uh I interviewed uh, Dr. Eric Smith, who's a professor at Iliff, and he's He's a Christian Church Disciples of Christ pastor, and that's basically what he said. So. <laughs> oh, that is just hilarious. Yes, because, you know, I'm a Protestant. Yeah. Authority in here's in one person in one space. No, 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 no. So that's what I do. <laughs> Actually, what I really wanted to do was go wander around the Vatican. Yeah. In time with all that amazing art. I think that's what someone said, too, is that they'd want to open up the Vatican for folks to Mm -hmm. look around and see the resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good. Do you have a theological uh, or historical Christian figure do you want to either meet or bring back to life? That one was much harder for me. Because many of the theologians I've been attracted to as I've read them, I mentioned Paul Tillich earlier. Yeah. Uh, John the Revealer. Oh. Be interesting. I love that. I love that. And the beloved disciple who wrote the Gospel of John. But when I, and Julianne Norwich, mm-hmm. I'd like to meet her. Uh, I wouldn't mind meeting Ignatius of Loyola. Oh. These are all really odd people, Lauren. Yeah. I'm not really sure. If I actually met them, I would like them very much. Well, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Let's move on. That's a fun one. I wish that I could bring back John the Revealer so that I could, he could tell me how right I've been all along about my reading of Revelation. Uh, I doubt that would happen, but I wished I could. What do you think history will remember us in this current time and place for? I think that we were willing, especially in the the circles that I travel in, the church and the church circles I travel in, the Christian circles I travel in, that we were willing to explore justice. Mm in some fairly brave ways. I think we'll be remembered for people who are willing to think about where the limits to God's inclusivity are, mm-hmm. or what they are. And, and I actually really think we'll, we may be remembered for being the people that finally did actually leave the building. Oh, uh, and and realized that the Christian movement is really not dependent on buildings, hmm. uh, and and it's. Where do yeah. you think that shift took place? Like I know Constantine is an easy one to pick on, mm-hmm. but I imagine it was earlier. Yes. Sure, I, you know. Or, or yeah. am I wrong? Is it later? 
No, I think it's cyclical. I think it's more cyclical, Lauren. I think that okay. uh, I think that yes, the Constantine shift in which the church began to comp- adopt so thoroughly Roman Empire understandings of authority and leadership and hierarchy and and who gets to say and who doesn't. And then the Protestant Reformation broke that apart and then it immediately began to do its own institutionalization. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so I, I think it seems to be sort of a, a necessary part of our embracing what it means to follow Jesus is to go hmm. through all kinds of movements. Cyclical, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you one other question. Do you have any guesses? If you could peer into the future 500 years, what do you think? What do you think the Christianity will look like? I, I I can only really phrase it in both a hope and an affirmation. Mm-hmm. My hope is that we don't lose sight of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And every generation must, in fact, rediscover Jesus and re-describe and even redefine Jesus. Yeah. That's, that's what we do. But I still pray, hope that Jesus is at the center of what it means to be Christian. Hmm. And then, uh, then I want to make an affirmation. Years yeah, ago, that was pretty heavy. So let's do a positive. <laughs> yeah. Years ago, I heard Fred Craddock preach a sermon to a group of disciples, a large group gathering, uh, uh, who were working on church growth. And, yeah. then, and we were all there and we were learning methods and we were discussing strategies and we were trying to build each other up and how are we going to grow the church? Because everybody knows we've got to grow the church. It all depends on us growing the church. Yep. And Fred Craddock stood up and preached a sermon about um, Jesus telling Herod, that even if he told the disciples to shut up, the stones themselves would shout and sing. Hmm. My, my affirmation is knowing that all of this doesn't really depend on us. Wow. It's the movement of God. A- and the stones, they'll sing. In 500 years, they'll be singing. And I hope there's some people to join them. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful image. Thank you for that. Well, Nancy, I don't know if you're active on the Snapchat or the Twitter or the TikTok, but where can people find out more about you? It just I'm afraid I'm not. <laughs> oh, Lord, I'm so old. Uh, we can then find out more about us at the Phillips website because what I do is on Visit Phillips and the Phillips Facebook page. and, and PTSTulsa.edu, right? Yes, ptstulsa.edu, and the Facebook page is just Phillips Seminary. Uh, And lots goes on there, so that's where to find out more about me. I want to tell those Princeton folks, hey, the real PTS is in Tulsa. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. And I think there's a Pittsburgh Theological Seminary too, right? And there's a Pentecostal Theological Seminary. Oh, my goodness. All right. Phillips. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and uh, 
blessings and peace to you and your continued work there in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and and beyond, right? Right. Thank you, Lauren. It was such a pleasure to get to talk to you today. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks and go in peace.